This morning, as we return to our ongoing sermon series through Paul's letter to the Philippians, our sermon text is found in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 to 11. Um, However, I'm going to begin reading this morning in verse 8 to give us that context for these two verses. This passage is printed on the back of your order of worship if you'd like to follow along there and reference it throughout the sermon. Beloved, God's word is more precious than gold. It is the most valuable thing in your life. It is more precious even than fine gold. God's word also is sweeter than honey. It is to be desired above all things, the word of God, for it is sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. Listen to it now. The Apostle Paul writes, and he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Thus far, the reading of God's word. It is absolutely true, and it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, Grant us now by your Holy Spirit to hear this portion of your word and to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it, that we may even more embrace and hold fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In our reading this morning, a few moments ago from the Gospel of John, Jesus teaches us, his disciples, about what we should expect to experience in our lives if we are going to follow him. Jesus does not leave these things a mystery. The context of the passage in John is that Jesus has just gone up to Jerusalem in his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, and he is now only a few days from his crucifixion and death, although those around him do not fully grasp these things. Now, John tells us there were some Greeks 
who had come up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and they wished to see Jesus. This doesn't necessarily mean that they were from Greece, but rather that they were Greek speakers. They were probably Gentile God-fearers. They weren't Jewish, but these men and women had come to worship the God of Israel. Somehow the Spirit had worked in their hearts and drawn them to himself. And so while they were in the city for the (coughs) Passover festival, they had heard that this Jewish rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth was there also. Probably they had heard about his ministry over the years that he had performed in Israel, and now they wished to see him presumably so that they could learn from this teacher that they had heard about. And so Philip and Andrew, like good apostles and evangelists, bring these Greek God-fearers to see the one whom they know as Israel's Messiah. And Jesus then tells them what it will mean to follow him. This passage in John 12 is worth remembering and pondering and meditating on, memorizing even. For this, in many ways, is one of our Lord Jesus's most clear teachings about Christian discipleship, what it means to be a disciple of our Lord. First, he says to these inquirers about him this. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And then he adds this. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Beloved, do you hear what Jesus is laying out here for these would-be disciples? First, he's teaching them about his own experience. He says, the hour has come for me to be glorified, and he means the hour has come for me to die. That in John's gospel is what it means for our Lord to be glorified. The time has come for him to be lifted up and to die and be crucified. And then he says, it is only those who embrace death who will be fruitful Only those who do as he does, it is only those who, as he puts it, hate their life in this world, by which he means count it as not significant, not ultimately important. It is only those who do this who will keep their life eternally. And then finally, he says this, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. And then, where does Jesus go after he says these words? Where does he lead those who would serve him? 
He goes, as he prophesied, to the cross. He goes to his death. It's important for us to see, beloved, that Jesus does not say, if you follow me, then I will be wherever you are. I will go wherever you go. No, Jesus says, if you serve me, you have to go where I go. You have to follow me. Wherever I am, there will my servant be also. Jesus is saying that if you are going to follow him, if you are going to be his disciple, your life will inevitably must take the pattern of his life. To be a Christian, if that's what you plan on doing with your life, does not mean to be very clear that you should just plan on doing whatever it is you want to do and just add a little Jesus on top of that. That is not Christian discipleship. That is something else. That might be American Christianity, as it's largely understood, but it is not Christian discipleship. Now, Jesus is saying that if you are going to follow him, you had best think about that because you must expect then your life to take on the contours of his life. You must expect him to lead you on the same path that he walked. If we take this kind of language from Jesus seriously, which we should. He says this not only here, but also on other occasions in the Gospels many times. Then these words of Jesus will actually give us a lot of explanatory power for our lives. Lots of times we wonder, why is God doing this? Why is this happening to me? Why am I suffering in this way? Why have I lost these things? Why have my dreams and desires been shattered? Friends, this is what our Lord promised. If you follow Jesus, you must go where he goes. Those who follow in his way must be where he is. And so that means that you will, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, lose things that are precious to you. Because Jesus lost things that were precious to him. It means that your life will not turn out the way that you had planned. I can promise you that. I mean, I can't tell you everything about what's going to happen, but I'm pretty confident that what you thought about on your own is not where the Lord is going to lead you. And that's because you're not holy yet. You don't know what's best for you. You will be called to sacrifice for others. I can promise you that. You will be called to love other people in ways that are not just fun and easy, but actually costly and humbling and counterintuitive and not immediately enjoyable. Because Jesus loved like that. You will be sinned against. Because Jesus was sinned against. You will experience betrayal. Because Jesus experienced that. You will know grief. Because that is where our Lord went. Into the grave and the tomb. 
But what if, friends, all of these things, all of these experiences are actually a fundamental part of what it means to follow Jesus, right? They're not aberrations from your discipleship, but actually the core of it. What if when you experience loss and difficulty and suffering, you are actually right where the Lord wants you to be because that is where Jesus went and that is what it means to be his disciple. Remember, he said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. The Apostle Peter thought that understanding our lives in this kind of way, this kind of Jesus-shaped way, was actually fundamentally necessary in order to make sense of all the things that happen to us. He writes to Christians who, to whom things are happening in 1 Peter, right? They are experiencing suffering and difficulty, and it is confusing. Why are these things happening? The readers of his letter are wondering. And he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, I love the way that Peter puts that. He knows how easily we forget the way our lives are supposed to go if we are going to follow in the way of Jesus. He knows how quickly we assume that the norm is easy and, and, and you know, just clear skies and suffering is the aberration instead of the other way around. Beloved, if you are going to follow Jesus Christ, then the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you, should not surprise you. Because it is not a strange thing that is happening to you. It is the path of the cross. It is the way of Jesus. If you follow Jesus, friend, you will live a Jesus-shaped life. There are no shortcuts. There are no alternative routes on your GPS to follow if you're going to go in the way of Jesus. And in our text this morning, Paul knows these things, and he is writing from that perspective. He knows as he sits in a prison cell and waits for his trial before Caesar, he knows as he reflects back on the last 30 years of his life since he met Jesus on the road to Damascus as a man with dreams and plans and status and possessions. He knows in his bones and in his memories and in his present existence that to follow Jesus means to live a life that is Jesus-shaped, not the way he had planned it. But the fascinating thing about this whole context and passage in, in Philippians 3 is that Paul is not sad about these things. I mean, he's delighting in them. He says, I have suffered all the loss of all things, and I count it as rubbish. You know what Paul is saying there? 
that he hates his life in this world so that he might keep it for eternity. That's the kind of perspective that Paul has embraced. And then in verses 10 and 11, he he begins to, he goes not only from talking about his own experience, but he, he gives us a way in. He begins to talk about promises that are given to us as we walk in this way of Jesus, as our lives take his shape. The first promise that Paul gives in verse 10 is that one of the ways that we will actually come to know Christ as we live in this life is by sharing in his sufferings. Remember, Paul is talking about how for Christ's sake he had suffered the loss of all things. And that's not metaphorical, that's real. He is penniless and on trial. He has been abandoned by friends and family. He faces death. And Paul says, I gladly embrace the loss of all things so that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and that I may share his sufferings. Literally, the word that is translated as share here in the English is the Greek word koinonia, fellowship. What Paul is saying is that he wants to know Christ so deeply that he knows one of the most fundamental ways that he will have fellowship with Jesus and come to know him more deeply is by having koinonia or fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. Beloved, I want you to see what a precious promise this is to you in the midst of your suffering. Your suffering, friend, is one of the fundamental ways that God has given you to know Jesus, to share in his own suffering. Your suffering is not wasted. It is not meaningless. It is the way that you come to know your Lord by sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Friend, do you know betrayal? I mean, do you know that pain of people that you trusted turning against you and hating you and rejecting you? If so, then that is a way that you share in the sufferings of Christ. Because Jesus was betrayed as well. Friend, do you know physical suffering? Do you know cancer or a long-term illness? Do you know what it is to feel pain in your body? That then is a way that you share in the sufferings of Christ. For Jesus himself was afflicted in his body also, even unto death. Do you know abuse or loneliness or disappointment or poverty? If so, then these are ways in which you share in the sufferings of Christ. Because Jesus suffered in these ways also. One commentary, commentator on this passage puts it this way. He says that intimacy of union with the living Lord and the power of his resurrection is only possible as the apostle first comes to share in his sufferings. 
becoming like him in his death. And so, the commentator writes, baptism is our entrance upon a life in which we, like Paul, share Christ's sufferings. And this costly discipleship is the road by which Christians come to know who Jesus is and to follow him. This is the path, friends. Yes, we come to know Jesus more deeply as he is offered to us Lord's Day by Lord's Day in word and sacrament. Absolutely. But somehow, in a mysterious way, all of these things are applied to our hearts and our souls. And we come to know Jesus in the midst of our suffering. As we offer that suffering up to the Father in union with our crucified Lord. I promise you, friends... Anyone who has lived a long life of following Jesus has come to know Jesus in this way. The more we suffer with him, the more we know him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, For as we share abundantly, right, in an overwhelming way, in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ, that is, in union with Christ, we share in comfort, too, in His comfort, the comfort that God gives. There is something we can only know about our Lord. There is something about our intimacy with Him that can only come, friends, through suffering with Him, sharing in the sufferings of Christ. The second great promise that Paul gives us in this passage is that as we share in Christ's sufferings, we are also being prepared for something else. We are being prepared to share in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Remember Paul's word or Jesus' words in John, that where I am, my servant will be also. And then he says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What did God do for Jesus when he went to the cross? Was he abandoned finally in death and his suffering? No. God honored his son. God raised him on the third day. And friend, that promise is given to you that if you Serve Jesus, the Father will honor you also in your suffering. We're talking a lot about suffering today, but we must remember that suffering is not eternal, friends. It comes to an end. There is a termination point because the Father, honor those, Father honors those who suffer with Jesus even as he honored his son. This, according to Paul, is the great telos, the great goal of all that we experience in this life. Not just that we would suffer, but that we might somehow participate in the resurrection and what is coming. Listen to Paul. He says, I count everything as loss. For Christ's sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. 
that I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Every time I hear those words of Paul when he says that I may by any means possible attain the resurrection. And that sends chills down my spine. And I hope it does for you as well. What Paul is saying here is that there is nothing that is more important to him than being raised from the dead on the last day in participation of the resurrection of Jesus. There is nothing that he will not suffer or lose or give up or relinquish if only somehow, in some way, he might know the glory of the resurrection on the last day. Everything is worth it, according to Paul, if only he will be raised from the dead and know Jesus face to face and live forever in his presence. If only we could hang on to that kind of perspective. If only we could also say, if by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. If only we could cling to that promise, friends. What a difference it would make to our joy, to our contentment, to our hope in the day-to-day experience of our lives. Our lives are so short, beloved. Are so short. The scriptures tell us this again and again because they know that we might forget. We might think they're long, that they last forever, that they don't come to an end, but they're so short. The scripture says we are like grass that grows in the morning and dies in the evening. Our years are so brief And eternity is not like that. It is so long. It is so weighty. It is so significant. This kind of dichotomy between the briefness of our earthly life and the length of eternity as it stretches before us is exactly what motivates Paul when he writes in 2 Corinthians 4. It is not because he is a masochist that he says these things. It is not because he doesn't know what it is like to suffer. It is not because he thinks suffering doesn't matter. It is because he is making a comparison between life in this world and life in the resurrection. And he says, this slight momentary affliction. I mean, friends, that brackets whatever you have experienced in your whole life in terms of suffering. Paul calls it slight and momentary because it is preparing you for something else, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Friend, this is the promise and the hope of a Jesus-shaped life. Not only knowing our Lord in the way of his cross, and his sufferings, but also knowing him even more fully 
And finally, in the glory of the resurrection which is to come. And what a promise that is. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the calling you've placed upon us to walk in the way of Jesus. And we ask, Lord, that you would grant us the wisdom and grace to ponder these things in our heart and to be transformed into the image of your Son. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.